turn towards the person of Jesus Christ perhaps more than at any other time. And that's something that we can capitalize on to talk to them about Jesus Christ. Of course, when we understand the gospel of Jesus Christ as Paul defines it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4, the gospel which we have believed, which we have heard, wherein we stand, it's not the good news of his birth, but the good news of his death, burial, and resurrection. Now granted, that couldn't happen without the birth. But it's interesting to notice the emphasis that the gospel writers put on his death, burial, and resurrection. As you look at the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that tell us about the life of Christ, you cover 60% of the material before you get to our Lord's last seven days before the cross. His death, burial, and resurrection consumes nearly half the material in the gospel account. But I also find it interesting when we look at the Gospel of John that the Apostle John does not begin with uh, his baptism by John the Immerser as uh, Mark does. He does not begin with his birth as Matthew and Luke do. But he begins before that. He begins the same place that Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 begins. In the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we drop down to chapter 14, and we learn that that Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That that Word was Jesus Christ. That in the beginning, our Lord was there. And He had a hand in all of that. And when we begin to grapple with the eternal nature of Jesus Christ. As the Hebrew writer says, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. We realize just how significant He is and how insignificant we are. And yet, He came to die for you. In Colossians chapter 1, if you want to open your Bibles with me to Colossians chapter 1, I want us to consider five things that Jesus Christ came to give to you. Paul says in the book of Ephesians that he ascended on high and gave gifts unto men. Here are five of those gifts. Gifts that indeed are precious. <clears throat> Excuse me. Picking up in verse 13, we understand that uh, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son, in whom, that is, in Jesus Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Number one, Jesus Christ came to give us a pardon. <clears throat> The gospel is good news, but here's the thing. We can't really grasp just how good that news is until we understand the mess that we've made. You drop down to verses 20 and 21 of this book, we learn that we were enemies of God through wicked works which we have done. How's that battle going to play out? You 
arrayed against the God of heaven and earth? Not going to end well. But we understand from Romans chapter 3 that we are all vile and sinful, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That there is none that does righteously. No, not one. They are all gone out of the way. They are all become unprofitable. And Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, the wages of sin is death. And here's the thing about sin. It always shows up for payday. It collects its wages. Who in here hadn't accidentally hit that button? <laughs> Sin collects its wages. We deserve death. And that was the choice that we made. And yet, we have redemption through His blood. That word redemption, quite literally, it refers to a ransom price. Because when we made that decision to align ourselves with Satan and against God, we became slaves to sin. That's Romans chapter 6. We sold ourselves. We sold cheap. But we ain't going to be bought back cheap. And we understand this concept of a ransom, right? You see it in all of, all of the movies. You know, I want a million dollars in unmarked bills, you know, in a black bag under a park bench. And if you don't pay the ransom, then something bad's going to happen. And here you were, here was I, having sold myself foolishly, and I'm held for ransom. But here's the thing, I'm the enemy of God, I'm unprofitable, I am unrighteous, I am vile. Their throat is an open sepulcher, Paul says in Romans chapter 3. But Jesus came and paid that ransom anyway. We have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness is a powerful thing because that mess we've made, we don't have the ability to fix it. Nothing we can do, no matter how much we do it, no, no, no matter how good it is or how great it is or how many times we do it, we can never Fix what we broke. We can't get back where we were. But Jesus came to make that right. The forgiveness of sin. That word forgiveness carries the idea of sending away. Think about what we read about in the closing chapter of Micah. That the prophet says, their sins and iniquities I will cast into the depths of the sea. Jeremiah chapter 31, their sins and iniquities I will remember no more. Hmm. Think about that for a minute. God is omniscient. He is all-knowing. There is nothing that God doesn't know. He is a very discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Jesus didn't need anybody to testify to him what was in man because he knew what was in man. He knows your thoughts, your fears, your feelings, everything that goes through your mind. He knows it. Everything that's ever happened anywhere in history, he knows it. Except their sins and iniquities I will remember no more. So think about that for a minute. 
when you stand before Jesus Christ on the day of judgment, which you will, Acts chapter 17, verse 31, God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he has appointed. And we understand from 2 Corinthians that we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account of the things that we have done in this body, whether they be good or whether they be evil. You've done some evil things? Come on now. I know you have, I have too. We all have. And you're going to stand before Jesus and answer for that. But here's the thing. You know that one thing? That thing that you just really regret. I mean, it's like a boat anchor around your neck. And every time you think of it, you're just so ashamed. When you stand before Jesus on the day of judgment as a Christian, you say, well, yeah, Jesus, what about that one? You, you, you remember that day. You know what I'm talking about. He's going to get this funny look on his face. He's going to kind of flip back and forth and say, no. I don't have any record. I don't remember that. God, who knows everything, has chosen to forget those things that separated you from him. He came to give us a pardon. Number two, he came to give us a pattern. Verse 15, and he is the image of God, the firstborn of all creation. Now that word firstborn, that's the same word that we see in Psalm 89.10. It, it refers not to birth order, but rather to a position. He was made the firstborn. He has the double inheritance. And the birthright is his. Not that he was created, but that he has first place over all creation. But he is the very image of the invisible God. God who we can't see. He's the very image. That word image, that's the word icon. Who here remembers floppy disks? Find a floppy disk and show it to a kid. They'll be like, oh cool, you made a, a 3D model of a save icon. That's the word, icon. It's an image that shows you what that thing is like. Jesus is the icon that shows us what God is like. Look across the page, chapter 3 and verse 10. Put on the new man, which is renewed by knowledge after the, here's our word, image of him that created him. As Christians, we put off that old man of sin. We leave him in the waters of baptism. And we come up a new creature, a new person. Which after knowledge, you got to get into the book. You got you to know Jesus to follow Jesus. But we become. He gave us that icon, that example. And the more we know Jesus... The more we follow him, the more we become like God. And you think about that for a minute. That was the promise of Satan from the beginning. Genesis chapter 1 verse 27, that God made man in his own image. After the image of God made he them, male and female, created he them. God made us after his image. And then Genesis chapter 3, here comes the serpent and says, oh... God knows in the day that you eat that, you'll be like him. God's holding out the best. You, you could be like God. That was always Satan's promise, but he can't deliver it. But here's the irony of that. That was always God's will for us. 
in Jesus, we can be like God. We are made after his image, that new man which is created in righteousness and true holiness. He gives us not just the pattern, the, the, not just the pardon, but then he gives us the pattern to follow. Number three, verses 16 and 17, he gives us our parentage. He tells us where we came from, and it's him. And he is before all things. For by him all things were created, whether in heaven or in earth, visible and invisible. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. That is, all things hold together. <clears throat> Three things we learn about the creation's relationship to Jesus in these two short verses. Number one, he made it all. John tells us that nothing was made without him that was made. And we see that, right? John characterizes him as the word. Genesis chapter 1, you see all three versions of the Godhead. Verse 1, in the beginning, God, the Father, made heaven and earth. Verse 2, the Spirit of God brooded upon the face of the waters. Verse 3, and God, what? Said, there's the word, let there be light. Jesus was involved in every step of creation. Everything that exists, exists because he willed it to be so. That includes you. And God don't make junk. That includes you. He created it, number one. Number two, he sustains it. In him all things consist. Verse 17, all things hold together. You know, the Hebrew writer tells us that God spoke all things into existence, and that was the voice that spoke at Mount Sinai, and that there is coming a day in which that voice will speak again, and when it speaks it will shake all things that created, and all things that are shaken will be destroyed by that same word of power. But in the meantime, it is that same word that holds it all together. This pew, solid as it is, this, this building, solid as it is, stands here for one reason only. Jesus Christ wills it to be so. It holds together in him. You know, we, we understand the idea God is omnipresent. He's so big that he's everywhere all the time. There's nowhere that he is not, right? The, the psalmist asks, where can I go to hide from your presence? Nowhere. But it's not that God's everywhere all the time. We get it backwards. God's so big that everywhere is in him. Which, by the way, that's the thing that makes hell, hell. Because it's an anomaly of all creation, both in the physical and the spiritual realm. There is one place, and one place only, where God is not. You don't want to go there. If Jesus were to remove his presence from this physical thing, it would cease to exist. In him, all things hold together. He sustains us. Isn't that what parents do? 
But number three that we learn in those verses, that it's all about him. You see, history is truly his story. All things were created by him and for him. And of everything that he created, it all does what it's supposed to do. How tall does a tree grow? As tall as it can. How big does a cow get? As big as it can. That's true of everything God made. It does what He made it to do to its, for the fullest of its ability, to the glory of God, to obedience to His commands. Except for me and you. We do what we want. But we were made for His purpose, for His glory. Number 4, verse 18 he gives us a promise. He came to give us pardon. He gives us a pattern. He gives us our parentage. He came to give us a promise. And He is the head of the body, the church. Notice that there. The church and the body, same thing. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4. We understand there's one faith, one Lord, one hope, one baptism. There's one spirit. There's only one body. You know, if you were to go to the Apostle Paul and say, Hey, Paul, what church are you a part of? He'd be like, what, what are you talking about, what church? I'm part of the church. Well, you know, like, like what kind of a church? Jesus' church? The one that he built? What do you mean? He didn't know of other churches. There was just one, the one body. And that one church followed Jesus in everything that it did in worship, in organization, in work, and in daily living. And he's the head of that body. And think about what that headship means, right? You know, we understand if, if, if I was standing here and I had one head and, 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 and two bodies, that would not be natural, that would not be normal. If I had just one body and two heads, that would be a problem. But there's one body and one, one head. Well, where does my body go? Wherever my head tells it to. It does what my head tells it to do. That's the only thing it can do. The same ought to be true of the body of Christ, the church. He is the head of the body. The church. Who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, Three things there so far about Jesus. Number one, he's the head of the church. The head of the church. Nobody has authority in the church except Jesus unless he gives it. But number two, he's the beginning. We've already seen he's the creator. He's the sustainer. He's before all things. It all begins with him. No wonder he identifies himself in the book of Revelation as the Alpha and the Omega. That's the first and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. He just said, I'm it from A to Z. The beginning. Number three, the firstborn from the dead. Now here's the thing. If he's the first one raised from the dead, what does that imply? 
there's going to be more. That's what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That if Christ is raised from the dead, then we know that we will also be raised. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, if we believe in Jesus, that Jesus died and rose from the dead, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. We have hope that this life is not all there is. This world is not my home. And the more I see about what goes on in this world, the more I'm grateful and thankful that this isn't it. Peter talks about that, 1 Peter chapter 1, that you were born again unto a living hope. To the resurrection of the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, reserved. Where? In heaven. Not here. In heaven. For you. Now think about that for a minute. Heaven is a place prepared for you, reserved for you. If you're a Christian, there's a place there with your name on it. That makes heaven radically different from hell. In Matthew chapter 25, as we read about the judgment scene, what does Jesus say to those who've been disobedient? He says, depart ye cursed into everlasting darkness into the fire of hell, prepared for who? For the devil and his angels. It wasn't prepared for you, it was prepared for the devil. But if you want to go there, you can. He'll let you. I wouldn't advise it, but it's an option. But heaven, that's a place prepared for you. He gives us a promise. He's the firstborn from the dead. He gives us hope in the resurrection. That in all things, Colossians chapter 1 verse 18, he might have the preeminence. That is, in all things he might have first place. And that's the thing. That has got to be the thing in your daily life. In your marriage, in your relationship with your kids, at your job, at what you're doing for fun, at what you do here. Everything, all the time, everywhere, Jesus gets first place. If there's anything that's more important than Jesus, if there's anything that takes priority over Jesus, you've got it messed up. And here's the thing, if your wife is more important to you than Jesus, you don't love her enough. Because you can't love her right Unless you love Jesus first. He's the architect of the home. He ought to know. If you love your kids more than you love Jesus, you don't love them enough. And sometimes that's hard. But in everything, he gets first place. Why? Because verse 19, number 5, he gives us purpose. Because it pleased the Father that in Him all fullness should dwell. So many people in this world today are hurting. They're searching for fulfillment. They're, they're, they're empty. There's this, this void, this, this unexplainable thing that, that they can't get a hold of and they look for it in all kinds of weird places. Look for it in the bottom of a bottle. Look for it in their job. Look for it in their family. 
Now, we just came through Thanksgiving. I don't know about your family, but my family, I don't want you to meet all of them. (laughs) You ain't going to find it there. God determined, and it pleased God, the all-fullness, the things that make your life full, the things that make you complete, the things that make you fulfilled are in Christ. If you want to have purpose in life, if you want to have that fulfillment, if you want to be a whole person, where do you got to be? In Christ. He gives us purpose. But it begins back there in verse 14. He gives us pardon because he understands that you and I, we've made some mistakes. We've done some things, been some places we're not proud of, and we don't know how to fix it. And Jesus does. He'll take all of that and wash it away with his blood. And then he'll give us the pattern to follow to make a new life in holiness and true righteousness. He gives us our parentage, where we came from, where we really came from, made to be in the image of God, to glorify Him. He gives us promise for a better future, a future that goes through eternity. And He gives us purpose that fills every day. No wonder the Gospel's good news This morning, I ask you, do you have those five gifts that our Lord came to give? If not, there's but one thing standing between you and Him, and that's you. If you have not yet become a part of that one body and had your sins washed away through faith, repentance, and New Testament water baptism, what are you waiting for? If as a Christian you struggled with your pardon, your purpose. Following the pattern, maybe you realize you've been out of step with the gospel and you want to fix that. You can. And as a family, we can walk together in the footsteps of Jesus and share that purpose with those around us. Let's pray together about those things. Maybe there's something else that you're burdened with, something else that's weighing heavy on your heart and your mind. You don't know what to do with it. Jesus does. Bring it to Him. Those gifts are amazing. Don't leave without them. If you are subject to the Lord's invitation this morning, if there's something that He can do for you, something His family can do, don't leave without it being done. Won't you let those needs be known by coming to the front while together we stand and while we sing?